Welcome to Telling the Truth. My guest today is Gene Williams. He is a musician and producer and recording engineer. Gene, thanks for coming on with me today. Thank you for having me. That was a pleasure. So we've been exploring this topic lately, this question, what does it mean to be a musician? And I felt that one of the best ways to explore that question would be simply to have conversations with other musicians, and we just find out what comes up, what we what we learn, what we talk about, etc. So would you tell me your your story, so to speak, as a musician, as an artist, how you began doing this thing called music, how you got into it, what's and what's happening for you. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you. Um, well, thank you for having me on here, first of all. Um, and uh, what an awesome question in respect of, I mean, I mean, a really awesome question because I think that what it is to be a musician is what it is to be an artist in, um, in any field. And that when I use the term artist, that's, that's a broad definition of someone who's living their life, um, who are craftsmen, who are brilliant geniuses and, 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 you know, goofy people all rolled into one. (laughs) Um, yeah. And it's, you know, the, the entire spectrum of, of society is represented in music. And I think in so many ways, music is our way of saying bigger things, especially when we're, we're a, a, a society that's in distress. I think artists sort of, I wouldn't, I don't like to use the terms responsibility, but in a certain sense, I think that, that they have an awesome opportunity to really influence how the world is perceived by those who might not have uh, other ways to, to, to reach out and see those things. But uh, for me, that, that journey started a long, long time ago. I I grew up on a farm in uh, rural Missouri down in the Ozarks region. And Mm. um, my early musical background, uh, my, um, uh, my mother, who I was raised with, she was into big band and swing, and my my dad was into um, real like old school country music, like Hank Williams uh, Senior, mm-hmm. you know, um, Jim Reeves, that, that kind of uh, Johnny Horton, you know, the, those sure. things. And then there was um, my sister. Our well, anyway, uh, the uh, the other part of the family that would I come and visit from time to time would show up maybe every six months started bringing me these cool albums uh, whenever I was a little kid. And that was things like Black Sabbath. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Matter of fact, m- one of my very first albums ever was Black Sabbath's Master of Reality album, which having heard nothing but big band, and I'm talking like Lawrence Welk and stuff like that, not necessarily, yeah, sure. you know, <laughs> not necessarily sure. the swinging fifties kind of big band stuff. Um, champagne stuff and, and whatnot. But um, yeah, the, so she was bringing me that kind of stuff and um, Leonard Skinner and, and stuff like that. And it was okay. completely opening up my ears. And then I think it was around 1974 or five, something like that. She brought me this weird album called the eclectic electrics of the Moog orchestra. And it was just mm. this incredible synthesized album of just bizarre sounds that, you know, I'd never heard before. Um, sure. And, and it was, that sort of thing that got me fascinated. Music was always around. Uh, almost everyone around my 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 parents didn't uh, weren't musicians. My old man and old woman did both sing. Um, 
But okay. uh, at the same time, they, neither of them played instruments, but several people in the family did. Um, so there was always, you know, mu- uh, musical instruments around. I had a guitar around from the time I could remember. Um, not that okay. it was a very good guitar. Uh, but then you can compress a lot of time there from like my early days. I was always tinkering around with stuff, but I never really learned anything. And then I broke my leg really bad in a, in a uh, motorcycle accident uh, when I was 15. Mm. And mm. I was laid up for like about six months in a cast, something like that. Sure. And my parents to kind of give me something to do, got me a better guitar than I had had, which was this, Uh uh, um, little Kingston guitar. You know, it was, it was still a fairly cheap guitar, but it was way better than what I had. And inside of two weeks I had learned to play and I learned to play off of the listening to records like Johnny Cash. And my very first one, I will never forget was learning to play the, the, the song called the rock Island line. And it, okay. uh, it completely <laughs> caught me by surprise because my, my parents were away uh, visiting some other people and I was at home listening to, to the music on the record player with my legs still in the cast. And um, I was playing Johnny Cash and I'm like, I know that 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 chord that, that he's playing, you know. So I, I, I hobbled over and got my guitar and I'm like, ting, ting, ting. Oh, my God, I can play this. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's from that point forward, uh, by the next uh, by the next summer, um, I had put a, a band together uh, or got together with with another couple of people and, and put a band together, not necessarily by myself, but um Mm-hmm. And we started playing little gigs and stuff like that. Um, long story short, um, I did that off and on for about, I don't know, four to eight years, something like that. Uh, then okay. took a little bit of time off to go to college, oddly for the purpose of getting a potentially um, uh to earn my professorship somewhere and then mm. to use the money that I would earn from being a professor to um, fund my own private studio, which okay. uh, would have been great, except that I picked archaeology, which is the second lowest academic or it's the second lowest paid academic field that was hmm. around at the time. And I see. whenever I found out that whenever I graduated, you know, but through all the years that I'd have to do, I, I, this was right at the end of my bachelor's degree, whenever I was uh, finding these things out, um, that I would be making basically less than what I would probably make if I were busking on the street playing music. I Ooh. decided that like, you know what, let's, let's give music another round here, just straight up. Um, and this time yeah. though, I approached it from, uh, doing, uh, studio stuff. Um, I had just done a couple albums with a couple of friends and, and they were pretty decent. A couple of other people started asking me to, um, uh, record or help them record or help them, you know, help mix their stuff down. That over a period of about three, five years, something like that turned into a regular mastering gig or, or well, not mastering, okay. gig, but, but engineering gig. Um, and then over many, many years of running a commercial studio in the Boston region. Um, I also was a performing artist at this time. I, uh, I did things as, as broad as dark ambient stuff on the one end. And I would play raves and, and play trance music um, on the, mm. the, the far end of the spectrum and literally everything okay. in between. Um, my musical uh, tastes and um, proclivities lie everywhere. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. I, 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 the, my, my main qualification is that it's good music. That's, that's really the, the main thing. Um, I hear you. And then uh, so over time, um, I got to where like um, 
in in this game, like it's great to have a lot of abilities and be able to wear a lot of different hats, but you really excel when you concentrate on one thing. So over the last few years, I've really been concentrating on just mastering alone. Um, I still do hmm. the occasional mix and, you know, to certainly pursue my own artistic stuff as well. Uh, but but these days I'm mostly a mastering engineer. Now, that being said, I have also been playing my guitar much more than I had been because I'm also supporting um, Glenda Benavides uh, in her work. Um, mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm, I'm her co-songwriter for a lot of stuff and for a lot of our, um, acoustic gigs, I'm her backing musician, which I love to do that. I, I mean, she's a phenomenal front person. Um, and it's always great to support somebody like that. Who's both very generous on stage and a consummate professional, but you know, it's, it's yes. that's the kind of thing though, that I still, you know, have a blast doing that. I still wear my, my hat of a mastering engineer and, you know, I love the process of creating music and, and in particular, helping other people to realize their own artistic vision whenever it comes to music and sound. And that's the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> nice, man. I like it. So interesting. You're a Midwesterner originally from the Show Me State, right? Yes, sir. And you got how, now you got out to Boston. Was it originally because that's the university program you got into. So you moved out for school basically? Uh, to a degree. Yes. Um, so what had happened is, um, I was originally living in, um, in Springfield, Missouri and found out, um, that I could go take what was called an antiquities course. And I didn't realize, um, Mm -hmm. that that was actually archeology. span That was just the name they gave it. And, you know, the degree program that they had it under there. So once I, I found that out, I, um, I made, well, long story short, uh, I got in there, um, did one round of field school with them, got invited um, to go to Oman um, uh, mm. and work on a dig over there for five months. I was over there. Wow. Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, and especially for somebody that was, you know, kind of green like that, that I was, you know, it's a great opportunity and stuff and got to see some, you know, very interesting things in the world. But <laughs> nevertheless you know that that's what took me to boston originally then was whenever i came back from that um i had gotten um i'd made some really good contacts in the boston area and um there was boston university that had a great program and the, the exact right. the kind of line that i was really kind of interested in pursuing plus i loved Bo- i thought boston was a re- really really cool city I, uh, it was just you know it's a neat area as far as the u.s goes um, and, um, yeah, whenever, you know, I went up there to check it out, there was, yeah, I wasn't going back. Um, I was, I, I also followed a girl there. So, you know, that, that's oh, okay. as, as you do. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I did. Yeah. What was it like going from Springfield, Missouri to Boston, Massachusetts? That has to be one of the more radical shifts one could make while staying inside the same country. I mean, culturally that has to have been a significant shift. You are absolutely right. Um, but, <laughs> but you know, the, the thing was that what Boston really provided for me and what I really got out of the living in, in and around the Boston area was that, um, there was a lot more, at least public tolerance of each other and staying out of each other's business. Um, down, down yes. where I grew up in, in the, you know, the rural environment, and this is nothing against anyone down in, in those parts of the world, but people really mind each other's business. And that's, that's, it's both good and bad. Yeah. Um, you know, it's great to have people watching out for you and stuff like that, but it's, you know, it's also like you, you, you feel like you're always under scrutiny somehow. When mm-hmm. I moved to Boston, that disappeared. Period. 
people didn't have time for that shit. You know, they were like, they had their own yeah. thing going on. Um, you were completely non-consequential in their world. And it was the most wonderful feeling for me to, to be able to go to some place where there were more people than I was used to. And yet I felt more alone, which was great. I, I was, I, I'm not, I wouldn't say I was a loner. I just really enjoyed the solitude that, that I got yes. from that kind of environment, especially as an artist. I think that in those early days, I was very much growing and, and stretching out my wings and, and trying to figure out like how the world worked for me, you know, and, and what, mm-hmm. what, what, not necessarily why am I here, but why do I think I'm here? You know, um, mm-hmm. uh, so um, I went up to Boston. Uh, what was it? I think it was 92 and just never left. Um, I stayed up there 27 years before I moved to um, Vallejo, California, where is, which is where I'm at now. I moved out here uh, last fall, actually. So, yeah, now that's another big contrast, especially weather-wise, huh? Oh, From God, yes. Boston to California. <laughs> I'm so grateful for that. <laughs> do you? I bet you, you probably don't miss those Boston winters. I, I, I do not. I'm, th- this was awesome. I, I We actually got out here in early November, so I missed all that horrible Boston stuff. And the fact that it just got done snowing again in New England, like literally just like two or three days ago. I was like, you've got to be kidding. It's May. It's, you know, middle of May almost. So. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get long, long, heavy duty winters. Yeah, I'm from California myself, so that's a very exotic thing for me to think about heavy duty wintertime. It was only ever a vacation in the snow, or I remember once I had to be in Philly in the wintertime for an audition. And other than that, I never had to live through winter <laughs> like you did for years. So yeah, just completely different climate. But I do remember because I visited Boston, had a friend who was going to school there and I visited the Berkeley College of Music, a place where I auditioned and got in but decided not to go. But what a wonderful, creative, artistic city for so many reasons. My grandfather also went to Harvard, which is right there. And just a great melting pot of ideas and people and culture. And yet at the same time, I felt like nobody, like you said, nobody's really in my business. I can kind of do whatever I I want to do was the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And and I, I I think you're right. I think Boston, Boston likes to call itself uh, the most cosmopolitan city in the U S and I would really, I would have to hold up both New York and LA as being like, I don't know, maybe depending on one's opinion, I guess maybe Boston is, but, uh, but one thing is Boston is, is very much a European style city. So you get, um, you get this more indulgent in the arts kind of thing and, and it shouldn't be indulgent, but it's what it feels like whenever you're there compared to, um, you know, other places that I've, I've been around the U S and, and in particular the Midwest. And that's not slag in the Midwest. It's just simply that they, there's not any, there's no um, avenues made open for that that kind of the, the kind of arts and stuff. And this is the thing I've always had about why um, I love the museums. Whenever I went to uh, both most the, the, in Europe and uh, in the UK, that had no admission fee. And I, it's, you know, it's one of those things. It's like, this is art people. Everyone should be able to see art, you know, 
just yes. because my my the people that I grew up around were you know re, you know broke and they had no money, that shouldn't preclude them from being. I mean, they they certainly can appreciate good art, you know. And I think that yes. that the more that people are exposed to art, that's really ex- being exposed to yourself, and it's it's a reflection of of ourselves with each other. And that's something that's you know unique into the world, you know, in in the world as far as we know. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe insects and and my minor birds and crows all leave signs and symbols to each other. I don't know. Um, I think that since we're the ones doing the measuring of the intelligence, that's why we're at the top of that food chain. But, you know, so. No, I think that's beautifully said. And it's so interesting that you, you have that perspective, that cultured perspective of being a trained archaeologist in addition to the musical background, because that is a breadth that I would say is fairly rare in, in the musicianly sphere, as I'm sure you have noticed, mm-hmm. there is often what I would call a hyper-focus on musicianship. And just, you know, that's the world. The world is making music, playing music. Mm-hmm. But that broader cultural perspective of what is art, what is culture, what are the importance, what are the important aspects of that bigger cultural conversation, things like museums and cathedrals. And where I live here in Northern Greece, I live in the city of Thessalonica, which is a really old city. Its name is the name of Alexander the Great's sister, and it means Thessalonica is literally victory, Nika, over Thessaly, which is the region south of here. So when Alexander the Great's father conquered Thessaly, and then they had a baby girl, they named this city, they named her victory over Thessaly. And so that's both the name of the city and the name of Alexander the Great's sister, which gives you a sense of the historical pedigree of this part of the world. It does. And also the the attitude of the people who lived in those times is like, ah, what a, I have a beautiful young daughter. I'm going to name her what I just conquered this city by. <laughs> exactly. 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 So the, the walls of the Roman Empire are just about a 10 minute walk from my house. And around the corner from me, at the Roman Forum, Aristotle taught, St. Paul taught. In fact, the neighborhood just above my house is called Agios Pavlos, St. Paul, because he preached there. So it, it's a very, very old city in terms of the architecture that's around. And you can walk around the city and see modern buildings right next to the ruins of a palace from the 6th century. And there's a temple in the center of the city that was built, I think in the year 317, which is still perfectly intact, wow. like stone for stone intact and and beautiful, the same original acoustics. So here where I live, although I'm from San Francisco, I have this juxtaposition of ancient culture and modern living. And probably because I'm not from here, I really don't take that for granted. Mm. For me, it's it's an extraordinary thing to be able to walk down the street and around the corner and go into this church and to touch the columns, which were built in either the 5th or the 7th century, depending upon which one, or just a walk, a short walk, maybe about 500, 600 yards above my house up the hill. There's a church which was built in the 5th century, which has a mosaic, a beautiful mosaic in, in the church, which is completely original from you know like the middle of the 400s and it's perfectly intact so to see that kind of art 
and to be able to touch it and look at it and breathe it in, it makes me feel like I'm connected to the whole continuum of human culture and creativity. And so my music and my life as a voice teacher, singer, writer, for me, I'm now more conscious of it existing in a continuum of human expression, of human endeavor, of human creativity, rather than sometimes the feeling that I had, especially where I was from. I was born and raised in Silicon Valley. And so the obsession there tends to be technology and even more than that, earning money from technology, yes. <laughs> you know, the next IPO, the next big app, you know yeah. that, right? Yeah. And that never really made a lot of sense to me, that obsession around technology so as to monetize it. Just that was the hyper focus of life. And that was never the kind of a person that I was. So for me, when I first went to Boston, I felt like even though I didn't know a single person there, I was so much more comfortable immediately than I had ever been where I was actually from. And I think it has to do with, like you said, Boston is a very cosmopolitan, very cultured city. And in that way, it's it's quite a lot more like a European city. And then by the same token, when I first flew across the Atlantic Ocean and the plane landed in Paris, which was the first European city I spent time in, it just made intuitive sense to me, just the culture and the art and the architecture mm, everywhere. Yeah. I just thought, well, this is, I'm basically home now. It's mm -hmm. kind of how yeah, I felt. You know I get I mean? that, yeah. I, I very and, and the odd thing is, I, I did a lot of traveling in my younger years, um, everywhere from, um, uh, I spent uh, some time down in Central America, I spent some time in South America, all the way down to mm. Buenos Aires, um, uh, you know, a little bit of time in Chile, Peru, um, and then, as I said, over in Oman, um, and you know that that got we also went down to Yemen uh, briefly, um, and over into Saudi briefly, and you know of course all on the way back then I uh, I got we we I took a couple of weeks and, and stayed in the UK and it was you know just the the culture shock of coming back to a Western world in the, the respect yes. of the UK was so bizarre because when I first went to the UK I had this experience of like oh my God I feel so free here. Um, this is my, my people, my home, right? <laughs> yes. And then I went to Oman where I should have felt, and, and in many ways did feel like an outsider, but sure. I felt so welcomed in a way that was mm. almost alien to me. Um, and when I, sure. I came back, I noticed the rudeness of how the people were with each other got worse as you progressed like in again when i stopped in the uk it was okay like people aren't putting up with my shit as much now and by the time when i got to uh, the u.s and touched down in chicago i mean we'd been on a plane since for freaking ever um and mm -hmm. i was just you know i was tired i wasn't thinking i said what time is it here to one of the the, the flight attendant or um uh not flight attendants but um one of the people at at the, the kiosks you know the the one of the sure. agents there um and mm -hmm. she just, she snarled at me and she's like, there's the clock. Can you read it? I'm like, I'm home. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> and that was in Chicago, just so everybody knows. And just you know, to be clear, but, but yeah, but again, yeah, it can be a tough city. Yeah. And, and the thing is, you know, not to, to belittle any place it's, and, and it's just the, the, the difference in the speed at which culture moves, but 
in the Omani society, music and arts are a rich part of their culture. I mean, and this this goes all the way down to the common people. I mean, every night you can go to the, around the souks and there's people playing music and they're dancing with each other. Or they're they're mm. drawing these these incredible drawings that they're just gonna like wipe out in in a few hours, you know, like and and wow. just they're literally just doing it for the love of of, of expression, which I you know yes. that's so fascinating. And and too, you know, I also learned my lesson about Arab dinners. Uh, you're, if you're invited for dinner at seven, don't expect to eat until eleven. Um, oh, wow. man, yeah. But the beautiful thing is they entertain the shit out of you while you're waiting. So so mm-hmm. um. You know, we they had all this wonderful live entertainment when I was there that was from all around the different regions. And the other thing is, every time I would get into like a taxi, they would have this kind of what would be like Egyptian pop music playing. Um, it, it was uh, mm-hmm. generally like that um, uh, or Sheila Shonda, who was playing some of, the, some of her stuff at the time. Um, but the Natasha Atlas, Atlas was huge down there whenever I was there. Um, mm. Fascinating woman as well. But, but the thing was, again, you know, th- this was a society that by virtue of, of how we viewed them from a Western perspective was more restrictive. And yet I felt more at ease and, and close to my fellow person than I did when I started yes. returning back to the West with, with, you know, the, the, our, our greater freedoms, which are now gone yes. anyway. So it's like, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. I, I really feel that there's something about Middle Eastern people and Middle Eastern hospitality, which doesn't seem to quite have a parallel. No, no, it's, it's, it's much the same way I feel about, and I, I may, you know, I may upset a few people, but this is just my opinion that the French are actually the people in our Western society who have the best culture. There's just more of it there. They're better at it. They excel at it. That's what they do. But that being said, everyone has, you know, there's great things in every culture, but the French make that's, that's kind of what they do. That's their thing. <laughs> we do culture. Culture. <laughs> They really do. They really, that's true. They lean into it and they lean into it hard, whether it's classical culture or just the individuality of one's own fashion sense and fashion taste. They have a tremendous cultural premium on that. And that aspect of Europe in general, where culture is something that is more of a priority in ordinary life and daily living. I remember feeling when I was growing up in Silicon Valley as a little child, I felt like a foreigner. And when I was eight years old, I remember walking down the street in San Jose, California, which was the street I grew up on, Meadowlark Avenue, in fact, was the name of the street. And I was I was walking by myself and I said out loud, there was nobody around, but I was saying it out loud because it was such an epiphany for me to see this. I said, I can't be from here. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. I'm not from here. I was sure of it. Although at the same time, I knew that I was from there. I knew that I was born in San Jose. Right, and that that right. was the house <laughs> I grew up in. I was just literally one house down from my parents' house. But culturally, I felt so so foreign. So much to be an outsider. And so then in San Francisco, which is a much more beautiful, much more aesthetic city, when I moved there as a young adult, which is Shortly after I first met Glenda and started giving her voice lessons, I felt more at home in San Francisco because it's a very beautiful city, especially compared to the South Bay. And that definitely felt like it was a home 
in the sense of the beauty and the aesthetics being a part of daily life more. Oh, yeah. But then when I came to Europe from there, it felt like, oh, okay. Yeah, now, now this sort of makes sense. This would be just more normative for me. And the the cultural premium which is placed upon the arts in Europe is something that I felt like was how life should be, but somehow it wasn't really how life was, at least not where I grew mm-hmm. up. Not- it was a uh, very, like, a, I would say, for want of a better term, like a money-grubbing culture, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. Where that was, the focus was profitability, and if you get in my way, you know, God help you, basically. <laughs> well, we, you know, that that's it's a big part of our society. It's also a big part of, of the, uh, the the problematic parts uh, with, with certain parts of capitalism and, and stuff. I mean, capitalism can be good, yes. but, but capitalism also has its ugly side, just like most everything right. does. And and um, I think that where people are missing out is, is, is this overblown... Um, desire to stay with the you know the logic and reasoning things pulling you know arts out of the schools it's art makes you innovate yes. art is what you know is the thing that that creates the abstract um you know um the, I remember this great quote and I, I can't remember, I wish I wish I could remember to tell your your listeners where where this came from but um this guy was being interviewed and I think if I'm not mistaken that um he's uh, I'm not going to remember his name, but, uh, so just to move on from it, uh, this guy was working as a, um, uh, uh, a builder of cars. Yeah. You worked in an auto plant basically in St. Louis. Um, and Glenn cook, I think that's, that's his name. Anyhow, he, he's an author and he's done like tons and tons of books. And apparently at one point he, I think he, um, and again, I may be confusing my stories, but there was something about it. This mathematician came up um, and the guy had, had also recently become an author. Um, and on in an interview with like Johnny Carson or something like that, he's like, well, I guess you became an author because, you know, you, you know, wanted to have some ability to express yourself and, and, and really use your imagination. He's like, no, not at all. He's like, I got a math because I didn't have the imagination for it. He's like, to really be great at math. And he was into theoretical math. He's like, you have to literally create from nothing. Like you're literally coming up with abstract things that have never been done before. And that's incredibly daunting in my opinion, but that is also the essence of art. I mean, look at mathematics. It's a, a one string of failure after failure, after failure, after failure, because every single failure gets you closer to your goal. Every single time, everyone is worthwhile because everyone gets you that closer to the next probability being this is a win. Yeah, man, that's a great, that's a great metaphor for the creative life in general. So, so much of the, at least in my experience, so much of the creative journey is the, the being willing to move forward, to be with what works, to be with what didn't work. And to continue to press forward, to continue to practice, continue to grow, continue to develop. And it's interesting that that person with a math background, did you say Glenn Cook, I think was his name, had the the honesty to say just how much creativity goes into that domain. And I think that in in certain parts of of society, like, for example, Silicon Valley growing up, 
the groove that people kind of fall into is the groove called how much money are you making today and how much money will you be making hopefully in the near future? And that's kind of the groove they live in. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so anything that isn't in that groove would be almost shatteringly unexpected and even culturally inappropriate. And now you're from the Midwest. I'm not from there, but I remember when I first spent time in the Midwest, my impression was, Oh, these are human beings. Right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I totally get it. Totally makes sense to me. Like they're they're just humans with other humans. Mm -hmm. Whereas the the humans that I was raised around, most of them were I don't have anything against engineers. I love engineers, but it was mostly money obsessed, money focused use, like if you will, prostitution of engineering for profitability sake. And that tends to become very inhumane in a hurry. Whereas in the Midwest where people were just sort of, they were more relaxed, more open with each other. They would wave and say, hi, just cause <laughs> they had time to just have a friendly chat for no particular reason. And thought, oh, this is, yeah, this is just people. And and I'm I'm one of them. Basically, yeah, yeah. was kind of how, how I felt. And then I have relatives in the south, so although I didn't grow up there, I always felt like I was able to culturally sort of vibe with the south. And as you know, that too is a very, I would say, sort of a human centric culture. And and so these were aspects of my American experience, which for me were really very important as an artist, because even if it's not folk music it's definitely for folks you right know what I mean? exactly and and folk music obviously too like you know there one could absolutely say that uh, that for instance hip-hop is folk music uh, you know that it is the music definitely. of today you know so to speak and i think definitely and that that to me you know you, you pointed out so many of the, of the the main reasons why i think the dismissal of of the arts in our uh in in um you know having the basically just the kids concentrate on the math and sciences. That's such a mistake because like, you know, that, that author was pointing out the, the greatest imaginations are required for doing the hard math. So like yes. learning this logical kind of progression of stuff is, is great. And there, there, there is some, you know, there's, awesome things that 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 your logical side of your, 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 uh, yourself um, excels at. And, it's yeah. those little things, though, when your brain, when your logical side is just turning along, doing its thing. And the other one's sitting over there and it goes, hey, but what about this? And right there, right then is, is those moments when you're going to hopefully try something that you might not have otherwise tried. And if it works, great. And if it doesn't work, that could be art because art tends to be the mistakes that you keep. And that's, you know, mm. and I think that... The other thing that 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 taking the arts out uh, exacerbates, and you mentioned this, is that people become way more desensitized to being human um, on on so many levels. And and again, they replace that, or they try, and then some may be successful at it, but they they replace that with with things, material wealth, things like that. And then, and absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think that, that I, I also despise the idea of the starving artist. So I mean, like, Hey, if you want to be that, that's great. But 
there's no reason you need to starve. They are not mutually exclusive. Completely agree. Completely agree. So in any case, I I really do feel that if they taught the arts more and, and, and that became part of the core values that, that we teach our kids and stuff, which it is in other parts of the world, but not in the U S here. If we did that, they would actually be better scientists and better mathematicians and better, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because that's learning about humanity. And at the end of the day, this is what we are. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do think that there's something about, although of course I'm not from there and you are, so it's not like I have the same perspective on the Midwest that you do, but I do remember when I, before I left the United States of America I took a solo cross-country motorcycle tour. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun. And I didn't just ride coast to coast. I really zigged and zagged quite a bit. And so I probably made a you know 4,000 plus mile tour nice. with, when it's only really nice. 3,000 3, miles across the country. And a lot of the magic of that was just being in different small towns. Like I remember being in a little town in the north of Texas called Benjamin, Texas. Mm. And and I went into a gas station and the young man who was working behind the cash register who I was going to pay for the fuel showed me pictures that he had just taken of the wildflowers, which were in season because it was early spring. Wow. And and they, they were gorgeous. They were just absolutely gorgeous. But in my whole life, I'd never gone into a gas station and had the man behind the counter show me the pictures he had just taken of wildflowers. Like that had never happened to me before. I was like, what in the world? <laughs> but for him, it was just totally natural. You know, he spoke with that gentle Texas drawl. And Benjamin, Texas is a really small town. So apparently, taking pictures of the wildflowers and just showing them to the person who comes in to buy fuel is a perfectly natural thing in his part of the world. There's nothing revolutionary about that, not for him. But for me, I mean, I will actually never forget those pictures of the wild that I took some pictures right? of the wildflowers myself. And yeah, it, it it touched me so much. I walked out and was getting on the motorcycle. I was like, goodness gracious, where am I? This is a nice it's a nice place to be. So for me, being from a big city, being from that, you know, tech focused, money focused environment, even San Francisco, which is a wonderful cultured place compared to San Jose in many ways. But still, these these smaller towns, these more slow living places, I felt that they had a human value, and that's always where I felt like my music was really coming from. Mm-hmm. It was it was in relationship with people, whether the people I'm making music with, or the people who I'm making the music for, or the people I'm learning music from, or the artists who went before me, or the ones who are coming after me. It's all about human connection. And that's the one thing that I really was touched by in, in terms of middle American values and Southern values was that the quality of human connection and just that human connection being a major ingredient in life for better or for worse. I I know they get gossipy and all in your business too, (laughs) but at the same time, there's this, this sense of human value, just being affirmed kind of straight up. Like another human is a value. I'll treat you that way. It was a very, 
it was a very rewarding thing, like a very heart opening well, experience. And fact. I think that that that, that there's a you know when when you're in an environment that has less people, yeah. Um, first of all, there's less concern about is this somebody who's maybe a bad member of society which is bizarre because sure. in all likelihood they could hide out in a place that's rural way easier than in the city but that all being sure. said sure. um the thing that that happens when you're around a lot of people in a city but just because you know then th- these are just um normal physiological reactions to things but you close off um, because you have yeah. to, because there's so much stimulus here. I mean, we were designed probably to roam around the savannas originally and hang out in small groups. So when you concentrate seven or eight million of us or more in one small area, it's got to be yes. like verging on, you know, pushing our, our poor psyches right up to the edge. I mean, we've certainly adapted and grown used to it, but the thing that, that, that has become less, um, less freely shared is that that really basic human connection of like oh look at this cool thing and not worrying about whether they were you know going to sound weird or stupid or anything yes. they're just sharing their yes. day because hey we're, i'm a person you're a person i'm sure you're interested in this because i'm interested in this so you know <laughs> yes yes yeah it was really it caught me off guard and it was the most beautiful thing like oh my goodness i i could i like this actually yeah <laughs> and and then when I when I came to Europe, what I noticed was a certain degree of human connection is definitely a much stronger part of the Absolutely. cultural conversation. Sort of just it's a given. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. It's just the way that we react with other people and impact other people and connect with other people and the value of well, for example, so we're reflecting on the different ways people are handling the coronavirus and at least in Europe, the idea that the government would pretty much just cover people's paychecks while they're not working is that's in no way controversial pretty much in any place in Europe. It doesn't, there's doesn't left side of the aisle, right side of the aisle, whatever. It's not even like, that's not even really up for debate. Again, that's, that's, just, that's called human it, decency. <laughs> precisely, precisely, exactly, exactly. And the, that isn't even politicized, at least not over not over it, this it part of the world. It shouldn't be here. Yeah, and and the thing is, you're absolutely right about um, that. There is a lot more of that um, of that that sort of human willingness to, to to reach out to another person once you're outside of. And I and I would definitely say this is outside of the United States because I've I've been to Canada, South America, Central America, been to Europe. Um, I was most recently over in Scotland and talk about friendly people. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. I, I was I've I made a couple trips over the last couple of years to Edinburgh and. It's literally one of the friendliest cities I've ever been to in my life. I mean, it's like everybody mm-hmm. is your friend there. They're always patient. And, you know, I'm sure there are people that are having bad days there too, but I just don't seem to run into them. Thank God. But you know, so, amazing. <laughs> yeah. But, amazing. but you're so right about that, 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 that over really outside of, of the United States. And, and I'm not, you know, ragging on the U.S. here, uh, you know, about like it, it, it not coming up to things. This is just the culture that exists here, um, you know. Yes. And I think that as we look outward more, and this is the thing that about, but that, that this last round of, of political upheaval is, has 
it's polarized so many people over here and, and a lot of people want to be more isolationist, which I think is a, is a mistake. I think that, that what makes humanity great is, is our intermixture, our diversity and innovation that, that arises out of that. I mean, for fuck's sake, look at Silicon Valley. I mean, the, the reason it's so successful is you got bunches of crazy people that throw in crazy ideas and they stir them around and they pull out a piece of shit and see what sticks on the wall. That's pretty much it. You know? so. And they, and they have all this, just this conversation just is ongoing yeah. and ongoing. It's a real, it's a real, it's kind of a, a mind blowing thing to come into from the outside, I would imagine. But when I finally left Silicon Valley and when I left the San Francisco Bay Area, I realized how tremendously lucky I was to be from there. Yeah. yeah. It, it took me a long time to appreciate it. But when I did, I realized, oh my goodness the sheer amount of intelligence and creativity per square foot where I grew up is off the charts. Yeah, Just you're, you're absolutely correct. High. I mean, b- between the, you know, the, the phenomenally intelligent engineers and, and, and they're artistic in their own way as well. Um, and, yes, and then you have definitely. musicians of every walk and background, you have uh, visual artists, you have installation artists out here. They, and then, like you said, the art per cubic foot out here is thick. Let's just put it that way. It is thick. And it's really awesome because it's not, you don't get that sense of like it's in, 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 that it's um, in any way only the entitled get to, to have access to it. There's a lot of encouragement. Um, I've seen way more in the, in the few months that I've been out here, I've seen way more support, uh, inner artist support in the San Francisco area than I saw in, in the Boston region for the most part. I mean, you had pockets like that in, in Boston, but they were smaller, much smaller and a lot less cross pollinating out here on, in, in, in the Bay sure. area. It is nuts out here. Um, the amount of clay, it, it was so, I was just kind of getting into like the, the, the scene out here when, when the COVID-19 thing happened, which was both good and bad, but at the, at the same time, it, you know, it, it really put a, a hamper on, you know, seeing just the the depths to which that that uh, that that inner artist support kind of went but i had seen yeah. enough of it up to that point and i and of course once this thing happened everybody is you know they, they call each other every day they texted they set up slack channels to talk and shoot ideas back and forth mm-hmm. and and preview songs and, and it's just I'm, i mean honestly i think i have actually worked more and when i say work i what Music to me is is my work, but I I use the term work in a very positive sort of sense. I love my work. Yes. I love doing it. I love yes. you know. Yeah, I love a hard day's sweat, but it's mostly musical. You know, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I dig. Yeah, that California openness, no question about it, has some tremendous vibe around Agreed. it, and probably being from there. At least for for a number of years, I probably took it for granted far too much. But when I when I got out out here to Europe, I realized, oh my goodness, the the advantage I had of growing up in that creative, like brainiac sort of crucible mm. or or blast furnace of just you yeah. know the heat of the intelligence and the creativity and all that, it really is a very interesting place to have come from, and the high level of intelligence being taken as sort of normative is actually very advantageous because if someone's going to be a serious musician or a serious artist, 
it, it just simply does require a high level of intelligence to go to the upper echelons of a creative discipline. It just does. And fortunately, where I came from, that higher level of intelligence was just normative. It was just taken for granted. It was just like almost in the water. And so I didn't realize until really after the fact how how lucky I was. But then I felt like, okay, now that I've have come from that sort of a highly intelligent, very, very, very focused businessy culture. Now I'm cool to explore parts of the world that have a lot of other flavors to offer. Mm. And I was really turned on by what you were saying about your time in the Middle East and South America. That's a must have been a real trip to get those those you know, farther flung cultural experiences oh, it, it, and then sort of integrate them into your being. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the you know, they, it was absolutely fascinating. First of all, the differences, but the, the thing that fascinated me and struck me the most was how much we were like, I will never forget being, um, uh, the, and this, this actually happened on, on, in, in two very remote places. One, uh, was in Guatemala and the other was in, uh, Oman out in the Rubalhali desert, like out in the middle of nowhere. Um, both cases, mm. Uh, we had had a flat tire, and in both cases, locals in that area stopped, gave us a tire, not not just wow. you know tire wheel the whole nine yards. And in both cases, I am not this. I'm not making this up. In both cases, when we said, "Well, you know, let us pay you for this," oh no, sir, just you know, the next time that you find somebody on the road, just you know, you give the tire to them. And I was like, "Holy wow. shit!" <laughs> Wow. Wow. Yeah, man. It's just, they, it's this just human values. That's beautiful. Absolutely. That's and so and the thing that, that struck me about that was those people reminded me of the hillbillies that I grew up with down home. And I'm like, oh my God, we're, yes. we're the same everywhere. And it's so true. You know, people want to give their kids a better life, to, to be happy, to, to not have to, you know, to be secure. Um, those are, are all the things that, that across the board we all strive for. And, yes. and the thing is, it's within our reach. If there, if, if for a minute you, you kind of bank the greed back down and all that, you know, so much of what you're talking about, about the exactly. Silicon Valley stuff. And this is where the arts help because the arts help to bring you back to center and actually like show you the value of, of your own species and how your species can appreciate other species as well. You know, in, in this grand experiment that, that's here, we, you know, whether you're a religious person or a completely scientific person, somebody that's wishy-washy in the middle or somebody that believes that you're not even here and are part of a simulation, great, whichever, <laughs> yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we're still all interacting and so yes. when I touch you, it sends ripples. There, there, there's a, a great quote in James Gleick's Chaos book, I think it is, from back in the 90s or, or the late 80s, that said, that posits that an electron's gravitational field on the far side of the universe will affect our weather patterns here. And I mean, you know how small an electron is. Well, I mean, like I've never, yeah. I've never seen one, but obviously they're small. <laughs> Infinitesimal. <laughs> right, small. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, that it's gravitational field on the far side of the universe affects our weather patterns here. And I mean, I know that this is being in, in a much more of an analogy than, than in, in a kind of reality, but from a uh, an actual on paper math standpoint, no, the possibility exists. It's really highly unlikely that it'll have much of an effect. But because of things like that, the butterfly effect, so on and so forth, it does make a difference. So you 
plant art in somebody's head. You get them to hum a tune, sing a song, to think about a lyric, to, to feel a melody, to feel the movement of a sound, to feel how a low frequency uh, sub-bass sound will envelop you and, and warm your whole body up um, or how that like things can just pierce and, and you know, go right down your spine and, and, and hit that part of your heart that's just empty and broken at that moment or whatever. And then the memories that we create from from moments that were either traumatic or important or whatever in our lives that had a, a soundtrack with them, they're so poignant. You'll hear that that song or that sound, and it will immediately bring it back. And the thing is, is, this is also great with branding stuff too. What what we've learned about things, you know, think about the Intel uh, sound, you know, ding, 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 that little you know thing, or the old NBC, doon, doon, doon. You know, those were sounds right. that. You didn't have to see anything. You knew what that was about. That was the NBC sound, you know? So anyway, I, I digress. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I remember that sound. I do. I remember that NBC sound and the, the more recent, you know, the, the Apple oh, yeah. sounds, yeah. the sounds of the MacBook and ding, dun, 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 mm-hmm. those yeah. or whatever. <laughs> or the, you know, the, the, the starting sound that the Macs had up until recently, you know, the dong. And I remember being in, in a theater when Wally, the, the animated uh, feature came out and when he was recharging himself uh, and the next morning he goes, dong, all the Mac heads in the audience went crazy. It was nuts. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. And those things have become a part of the cultural language. Really. Absolutely. There's a, I don't know if you follow combat sports or, or mixed martial arts at all, to, but to a small I, degree, yeah. I, I watch it a little bit. Okay. So there is an animator. I think he's somewhere in the Middle East and he creates original animated cartoons riffing on whatever the most recent events are mm-hmm. in mixed martial arts competition and the different personalities. And he samples their voices and then he creates his own digital animation and makes up these goofy little two-minute videos. And <laughs> because he's clearly a kid that grew up in the computer generation, some of the the soundscape that he's created with these characters is from hip hop, and but some of it is just the sounds that computers make, the little beeps and squeaks. Yeah. And I was, oh, this is just this has become a part of the language of the way that human beings are interacting with each other. Cause you know, computers made funky sounds or weird little sounds and we all kind of heard those sounds. And so now that's a part of our sort of cultural fabric or absolutely weird little and, and, digital yeah, and I, I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not, by no means a linguist, but uh, I, I bet you a linguist would probably tell you that, you know, the, that some of the sounds that we hear being made by machines, we're mimicking back and, and we're incorporating them in the same way that like, you know, as you, as, as most people know, the, the, um, when you're like, let's say that you, you grow up in say uh, German culture uh, and you know, in, in, in that region or, or in Arabic culture, will you automatically know how to make that glottal sound that their language uses frequently? Yeah. That's not something yes. that comes natural to a Southern boy from Alabama at all. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. It's completely foreign. Right. Or the rolling or the, of the, the, the yes, exactly. The rolling of the, the R's. The R. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have students that because I'll use the trills, a voice yep. exercise mm-hmm. with some people, and then there are people who just 
that's not happening. Yep. <laughs> or, or, or if they can get to it, it'll take them, you know, a half a year or a year of practice before the tongue will. But of course, if you're born and raised in Mexico, yeah, it's just, that's it, not a big deal. Exactly. And, and, and these, you know, the people that have been, have grown up with this kind of technology, you know, that's being incorporated as part of their sense. I mean, I, I sometimes will say something to somebody and go, boop. Boo, you know, from the, the message sound that yeah, I do that shit all the fucking time. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah. Anyway. Um <laughs> and those yeah, those digital signatures are if you reflect on, you know, the nineteen eighties, which was for me the two main cultural threads sort of dominantly were Michael Jackson and Star Wars. Those yeah. are two huge yeah. cultural realities. And just the sounds that R2 D2 made. Oh yeah. Just those sounds yeah. in Star Wars. That's an ingenious little signature that they created. They made this little, you know, trash can this on wheels thing be incredibly endearing. Absolutely. And and I think that it was the way they figured out how those sounds made him have his own language. Well, and you know, there are certain tones that that we all feel something about, and and it's not. This is this is not something that is you know wrapped up in mystique or that that only the the arcane you know people of, of music know anybody can feel how something makes them feel you know and when you sweep a tone through like you know when you're using say a, a modular synthesizer and you're sweeping a tone you know doing a tone sweep from like uh, 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz or whatever there are going to mm -hmm. be places in there that is going to cause you to resonate in certain ways that is almost um uh, what's the term? Um, involuntary, uh, you know, and, yes. and you just react to it. And I, I think in a great example of this, um, when people are played um, sounds down around in the, the really low frequency spectrum, I know a lot of people like to, to be like, oh, well, you have to do this fre frequency. I don't really buy that. What we're talking about is really low frequency sounds. And the, uh, the creatures that make these kind of sounds are the first one is around 19 hertz. And that's a tiger just before it pounces. Mm -hmm. It creates this low sound, which oh, some say paralyzes its prey for just a split second because it, it, so it is it's stunning. The other one, and it, this causes fear in almost every creature that we know of on the planet. It's an automatic is I think it's uh, I believe it's either eight or 10 hertz, which is the sound of an earthquake. That's been imprinted into our DNA, basically, that sounds yeah. that are this low are bad. <laughs> yeah, if the earth is shaking. Yes. That is, you're about to be eaten. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, that's a problem. And that's another kind of problem. That's so interesting. I had no idea about the tiger at 19 hertz. That is well, fascinating. You know, another really interesting uh, thing about our, the way that we have adapted to sound. I mean, we, we only hear a small amount of, of sound really that, that exists out there. Um, you know, yes. so many other creatures have much more ability to both express themselves um, auditorily and, and to hear, you know, things. But um, with it, within that though, there's, there's so much that, we're just now learning about that, you know, how that, that sound imprints itself on us and the things that, that we can learn from it for, you know, a great example is, is how that, that our memory is so much more able to, to 
do make kind of like memory tricks, really deep memory tricks by putting melody to it. Our ability to recall melody is fascinating. But uh, a scientist once pointed out, somebody was saying something about why is it that we can detect timing discrepancies, especially in, in rhythmic music and stuff, down to like, oh, it's a really small, it's like a hundredth of a second or something. We would maybe not necessarily know that it was timing, but we'd know something is wrong. You know, it just wouldn't feel right to us. But we can be off as much as a half a semitone in pitch most of the time before most your average person recognizes that. And the, the gentleman who was, was talking about the, or gave the response to it was brilliant. He's like, well, that's because when a saber-toothed tiger is chasing you, you, your timing of getting out of the way is critical, whereas the pitch that you're screaming in is kind of unimportant. <laughs> that's brilliant. That's, a, that's so interesting. The, the value of speed and movement is, well, if you think about driving a car on the road, those split-second responses are possibly either life-saving Absolutely. or going to have you meet your death if you make the wrong mm-hmm. split-second adjustment. And unfortunately, in at least in our part of the world, the the use of pitch is not so connected to meaning as it would be, say, in, in the Orient. I understand yeah. that it's much more common for people from an Oriental background to have perfect pitch, which probably is connected to the fact that their language, the Chinese language, is highly tonal, yes. which means that without a very refined pitch listening ability – it would not be possible to distinguish meaning. Well, it, so in other words, they have to have that level right. of facility just to get both. Right. And and I think what you're pointing out there too is, is that their language actually gives them an advantage to hearing tones better because of the extraordinary practice that their 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 whole system, you know, yes. their auditory system, their their speaking system, and their, their right. perceiving system, i.e. their brain, how that all works together and and the skill sets that it needs to develop. It I mean, it's absolutely been shown again and again and again that that music will increase anything's your brain capacity for so many things that are not at all related to music it's just it causes your brain to open up new connections so when you have a language that is as complex and and multi-varied tonally as theirs is then i think that that you know in in a lot of ways that again i'm no scientist here in in, in this respect of things but i do think that that there's no reason that wouldn't have an influence on their ability to, to perceive pitch simply because they again they've had a hell of a lot more training at the difference in variations of sound that they produce to communicate in their regular daily life absolutely interesting analog to that i remember when i was in san jose california and I had moved out of my parents' house. I think I was I was still in San Jose, maybe Campbell. And I was renting a room someplace. And next door, there was an engineer from Venezuela. Luis was his name. And his wife divorced him. And after his wife divorced him, two women from Venezuela, his sister and his sister's friend, came to live with him for like, I want to say six months or a year, just because they're going to take care of the man and their family, even if he's in another country. They, so so all of a sudden there were these two Venezuelan girls next door and only one Venezuelan man. And so they wanted me to hang out with them. So there would be, you know, two and two. And I don't know if you've hung out with Venezuelans before, but these people dance <laughs> like 
like Americans like to eat. They just really like to eat. They are so into dancing. And these girls who were just regular Venezuelan girls, not professional dancers, the things they the rhythms they could do with their hips, the oh, polyrhythms yeah. mm-hmm. they could do with their hips blew me away. The only people I would have known as an American who could do things like that might have been like a very high level professional dancer who'd been studying from a young age. And these girls were just regular Venezuelan girls. But the language of dance, the vocabulary of dance is so in their culture, the subtlety of their movements and the the sensuality and the accuracy with which they could feel rhythm moving all through their body. It just blew. It was like, wow, that's a, it's like a kind, it was in fact a kind of musicianship that they had access to physiologically all through themselves. Well, you know, I I very much believe that, that, that really all music is it's physical um i mean i know like you know the the in modern times we we spend a lot of time listening on our earbuds and it really disconnects that that sort of all your your whole body sensation of it you know it's it, yeah. it still does a, you know obviously it, it affects you in a much smaller way and your body can still extrapolate we're humans that's what we're good at but um when you're in an actual live music environment or, or where sound is moving through the air at you and you're with other people, yes. that's, there's an energy that happens there to your whole body. You receive sound on your skin. You receive it through your bones. You know, there's all these different, you know, sensations that, that come along with that. And, that, and that's, you know, the, the thing that I, I kind of think that as some cultures really they they the way that they're expressing art is their their kind of signature in a in a way and a lot of them in the the musical forms that they use and the variants and that that you know just you know great example is you know there's 12 tones in the western scale we got gypped like a big (laughs) big time (laughs) but that being said there's absolutely a lot of of the the tones that we chose are really good tones they're ones that are both pleasing and horrific to us at the same time so they kind of you know fill the whole spectrum but the thing that that the arabs and the indians and and basically everybody in in you know asia all the way through china and, and japan and everything um the thing they have is the microtones and the fact that frequency isn't they you know their their music isn't always scale dependent as much as it's frequency dependent and i'm a much bigger believer than that in in that sort of thing because when you really fine tune music and when you're especially when you're working live with it and you see consummate musicians do this you know ones that that really like they they know their instrument they know how to perform they know how to connect and they will by you know you you may know this tune that they're playing they've played it a hundred times maybe it's an old traditional tune whatever and something that's happening in the crowd and the musician will then react to that and it basically turn that song on its ear with the change of one note, maybe, or a slowdown in timing or a little shuffle here or there. And suddenly the place goes effing crazy because that's that mm. moment of like, now we're all in this together. We're all making music from, and it's, and it's a physical thing. It's a communal thing. It's an auditory thing. You know, it, it, it encompasses all of it. It is like one of the, those moments are those moments that really qualify as celebrations of human existence, I think. Oh, that's a beautiful way of saying it. That's a really beautiful way of saying it. Reminds me, I was invited 
to perform at a traditional music festival on a Greek island a few years back, the island of Samothrace, which is a repository of ancient culture that goes back to the pre-Christian world. It was the place where there was the temple in the ancient world where a lot of the 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 people, the important people or the serious people would go for their spiritual attunements. Mm. And so the, the temple, which is on the island of Samothrace, the temple ruins, which are still there, are just amazing to feel, to feel the vibe mm-hmm. of. And for a number of years on that island, there has been a music festival, which is run by a friend of mine. And most of the musicians... It's a traditional music festival, which means the the Greek word for traditional music is paradosiako, which just means traditional, essentially. And in this part of the world, the folk music is contiguous with the ancient tradition. So if you're in a particular region of Greece, it's very likely that the folk musicians there will be playing the folk music, which was what their ancestors were playing a thousand years yeah, ago. Like yeah. It's literally that like, continuous and it's it's in their blood. So when I was performing at this festival, now they invited me to perform knowing that I was going to do whatever kind of music I was going to do as an American. I'm not playing their Greek traditional music. But the the musicians who were there at the festival playing with me were many of the best traditional musicians from all around Greece. I remember there was a girl and her father, they both played and sang. She was probably about 16 years old and she played an ancient instrument called the kanonaki and sang. And in this ancient manner, my goodness, it was like the soul of her people Mm. was coming through the 16 year old's mouth. And these were very, very sensitive and refined musicians and when I was playing for them, one of the things that I do, as you heard at the beginning of the show, is I do a lot of free improvisation in addition to singing more recognizable music like pop or jazz or folk. But when I do free improvisation, I realize that I may be going into musical territory where I can lose people. But when I was performing for this group of folks, especially the other musicians who were in the audience, it was as though they were just tracking with me and following and aware the whole time Mm -hmm. of what I was doing. They were just somehow intuitively able to receive, able to understand, able to connect. And I suppose it may because maybe because their own cultural language is so open and so well-preserved, it's made their souls to be really quite sensitive and quite creative and quite able to receive, able to feel. And, to me, being a musician on one level is sort of just a primer on being a human, being mm. able to to receive and feel and understand and and connect with with others in a meaningful way. Yeah, well, I th- I think I mean you know th- that's the thing about art is that art is it's a requirement that you share it. Uh, you know, people that yes. say I do my art for myself. No, you don't. That's not art. Then, <laughs> if you're just doing it for yourself, <laughs> that is not art. Art has to be shared with other people for it to become art. That's just the nature of, of what it is. That's not, I'm not trying to redefine things. That's the truth. <laughs> but that's what it yeah, is. But, Absolutely. But, but within that, that same context of, of how we sort of appreciate uh, culture within that, I, 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 I don't know. I, I find it so fascinating that, that we all 
you know, we'll, we'll circle around these old traditions and the, the cross pollinization that happens when cultures come together because from that, you know, it, it enhances in the same way that, 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 you know, look at, look at the English language and how many words we've borrowed from other cultures and other places. And if you trace the, the, the lineage of any, any language, it's, it's oh, yes. full of that. And it's usually, it refines itself so that it gets better and more efficient. And this is exactly, I think, what, what has happened with, with music. And the more that we, you know, cross-pollinate with each other, there's, an, I love the traditions that come out of places. And, you know, and that's such you know it gives such insight and depth to who the people are and then you take that information and you combine it with your your music and your sound and then you know put your own individual spin on it as well so now you're blending these these places that do have identifiable sounds that come from certain areas because that's part of the culture that that they grew up there and you're creating this other new thing you know and it it not only create something new and wonderful for us to all play with. Um, but it not only just validate and, and it doesn't just validate the old art, it actually enhances our understanding of it as well. And that's the part that I love about this, this whole process is as we go through it, the, the, the more intelligent that we become, the more our art grows with it. And, and it's not to say that art, art can be appreciated by people of all levels of intelligence. But the kind of intelligence I'm talking about is not the kind you measure on an IQ test. This is is the intelligence of humanity, of being a human. You don't have to be a you know a brilliant scientist to do to know that, um, but you do have to be willing to to feel because that's the basic emotional intelligence that where we are now is, is the place where we're lacking. This is where the arts, this is where music in particular, and it is the purest language of emotion. It's also the only art that is utterly ephemeral because sound as soon as it stops is gone. There's no, there's nothing left. So the moment that you, and, and that's even true if it's playing in the background and you turn off, so to speak yourself, you're, if you're, if your attention goes somewhere else, it's actually stopped. There is no music anymore. Yeah. It is just a noise at that point. And I find that such a fascinating thing. And the other cool, fascinating thing about sound and, and music and, and so on and so forth, but in particular sound, unlike your eyes, which you can shut and they, they get a rest, the ears are always on. They never, ever sleep. When you're asleep, the I ears do. are constantly pulling in information. And that's also why, like, you know, the, that for some people, it's really hard for them to, to sleep in a really noisy environment. For others, it's just the opposite. Really quiet environments, they need white noise or something like that to keep, you know, to, to keep something moving so they can attach to something. And, and, and you know, it's just, again, the physiology <laughs> behind these things are fascinating and when you see how they all come together in, the, in these weird wonderful and interesting ways it, it it's it's really inspires you to reach out to other people to create a stronger community to show people you know not to fight with them about it but to show them like look here's the value of this stuff i can actually show you mm -hmm. roi on this that that is is positive and will be good for you if that's the language that you want to speak i will speak that <laughs> but oh i completely dig that i really appreciate that now as we're chatting i certainly hear the mastering engineer in the conversation mm -hmm. so in in that you are, you're a musician who's also a mastering engineer, and I know very well that there are not a lot of mastering engineers on Earth. It's just not the most. Even in the world of people to do engineering, there, are, as you know, way more people that will do front end recording and mixing mm -hmm. than there are who do mastering. Mm 
So I'm kind of curious how you, how you, I was just looking at your website earlier, mindspawn.com. Mm-hmm. That's you, right? So I was looking at that. I said, okay, this is very, very much an individual. And clearly the mastering engineer part of you, because I can tell just by listening to you, it's really informed the whole way that you listen, not only to music, but the way you feel about life. So how did you get interested in mastering engineering? And how did you sort of decide to go deep in that fairly unique, very unique aspect of, of, of musicianship and engineering? Uh, this is going to sound weird, but uh, it... Uh... Taoism by way of Bruce Lee. Um, <laughs> That's so cool. Well, the, so so to extrapolate on that, Bruce Lee uh, was definitely one of my heroes growing up as a kid. Um, his um, his philosophy. I mean, his fighting was phenomenal. I mean, as as someone who affected you know uh, people via his movies and his oh, real yeah. real you know ability with with martial arts. You know that that's undeniable. But the the other thing that um, that always was something that appealed to me about Bruce Lee was his philosophy. And I, I came to it, you know, completely green. I knew nothing about, um, Eastern philosophies and stuff at the most, for the most part, uh, whenever I got turned on to Bruce Lee, but over, you know, the course of, you know, my, the, my middle, you know, years up to, and through my teens and, and early twenties, Bruce Lee was my, he, education in Taoism. He had a lot of Taoist principles, and um, he had a lot of uh, Taoist belief. Um, and and, and in, in this respect, I'm speaking of the f- philosophical side of Taoism, not the religious side. Um, yeah, but that his way of talking about his martial art. That's how I felt about sound. Sound to me was not something that needed to be confined to a Western scale, nor did it need to be to confined to to anything really. Um, whatever works is what I do. Um, and you know, if if this emotion operates better whenever I vibrate at this frequency just a little bit off of pitch, well, then I, I do that. This is the thing as as a mix engineer because I, I worked all the way through to the, to become a mastering engineer and there were, you know um, did recording engineer stance. I've did mix engineer stance, but finally settled on mastering. And in the process that that you're doing, you you wear different hats and you think about how these things are differently. Uh, each of the sections, yes. so to speak, a, a recording engineers purpose is different from a mix engineers is different from a mastering engineers and in a lot of Completely. yeah and in a, in a lot of ways the um the mastering engineer side of things for me is actually more disengaged it's it's less there's a lot less um uh, movie star quality or rock star quality to, to being a mastering engineer i think um uh and it's it's not a very flashy thing. A lot of times, um, aside from making something louder um, or ready, you know, ready for uh, going out into the world, um, you really don't do much. And that's the whole point. Is and that's actually one of your most, the, the, I think, one of the most important professional qualities that a mastering engineer can have is knowing when to not do anything. Um, uh, because you know, if if the mix engineer has really really done his job well you probably will yeah. have almost nothing to do um, other than, like I said, maybe making it, you know, loud enough for commercial release out into the world and stuff, um, which is, you know, it's, it's not to say that's no mean feat, but at the same time, you know, it's not that flashy or anything else, but it's also, you're the last step in the chain after you, this yeah. goes to the world. So there's such 
for me anyway, a feeling of responsibility. Like I want this to succeed as much as I possibly can. I am the, this artist's last hope <laughs> or, 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 you know, I'm the last sentinel, the last stalwart, the last guard here before this goes out yes. in the world and gets devoured one way or the other. And, you know, if there's anything in there, I want to make sure that, that I communicate that to the artist that like, I want to question, like, do you want it like this? Are you sure that this needs to be that way? But really at the end of the day, it's not about me changing anything that they did. It's maybe about me sprinkling a little fairy dust on the top end, maybe giving a little bit more warmth in the bottom end, maybe giving it, you know, some, some sparkle here or there. But really my job isn't to change things. It's to enhance what you already have there so that your art gets the best chance to, to excel and exceed with the current view of how the world likes to listen to music, because that's also something that's a moving target. Um, if you, for instance, mixed and or mastered, great example. I love Bob Claremountain. He's, he's a phenomenal mix engineer. He did at Roxy Music's Avalon back in, um, uh, I think it was the late seventies, I believe it was, or early eighties, something like that. Um, sure. Kind of a golden age yes. of, of recording. Yeah. And hearing for sure. The album is drenched in reverb. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, you just would not do that today. Is that, so does that mean Bob made a mistake? Absolutely not. He created an iconic album that is one of a kind in my, my view. Um, but to do that today, I mean, you, not to say that you couldn't, um, if, if that's what the artist wanted to do and it was a conscious decision, then absolutely. But it would not be the go-to thing any more than like having a vocal as far back as say, you know, any of the Led Zeppelin records have, um, Robert Plant's voice. I mean, Robert Plant cuts through pretty good, but you got to admit, we've all sat around like, what the word, what word did he say there? And listen to, you know, that session yeah. over and over. And now sure. everything is so, um, leveled out in, in the, the way that we we've learned to produce tracks um even in in live use i mean you've got people that use compressors and uh enhancers and so on and so forth in the live setting right. so that their vocals are way more leveled out than there used to be and, and and not for nothing but people used to actually have to project that's almost a lost art now um not to they have to they had to really sing back in the exactly. day exactly <laughs> and, and this is something i know that you're very well aware of that ability to project that's not only good in singing it's good in getting attention or or, you know, creating a, a mood that you want in any conversational um, yes, uh, event happening, whether that's a one-on-one -on -one or whether you're speaking to a huge crowd. The, the, the same thing is true. That ability to, for you to reach out there and touch someone to send your emotion directly through the airwaves like fucking magic. <laughs> Because in, 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 in times past, it would have been. But we now know that what that is, is our ability and our skill at expressing that across there and a good vocalist that, you know, knows how to work that. And they, 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 you know, they, they back it up with their body language, the, the look in their eye, everything like that. And with a single sound or tone, they have communicated something in just that tone that is volumes of explanation. And that, that I find that utterly fascinating. And that also to me is one of the beautiful things about art, how art can take something incredibly complex and make it such a simple, beautiful emotion and vice versa. You can take some really simple piece of art and it moves you in ways that you just is unfathomable. Man, it's, there's a lot to tap into what you said there. It so happens that I have been profoundly impacted by Taoism, especially the 
Tao Te Ching. Mm-hmm. That's yep. been one of one of my favorite texts of of all of, of all of the spiritual poetry in the world. And I'm still slowly but surely working on my own translation of it. In fact, it's that important. Oh, wow, to me. that's awesome. And, and I have an ongoing musical art project around essentially creatively, musically, and maybe even in film, interpreting those verses so that they can be understood and felt. And I've even worked with a dancer or two on this. There's just so much depth in those short, beautiful, elegant 81 verses. And Agreed. Agreed. When, you, when, when you're talking about mastering, I was... I was reminded of that Bruce Lee quote that I'm sure you're very familiar with. No way is the way. <laughs> I actually, I honestly just said that to, to a friend of mine when they said, could you sum up mastering in, in a quick quote? And I said, sure, no way is way. Because that is so true about most of the the, the way that, I mean, not every, every mastering engineer is different. I'll, I'll put that out in front, but I don't have a set of, of things that I do. I don't have a workflow, so to speak. Um, I mean, yes, of course I do, but um, it's really, really freeform and it's uh it comes from the way that i interpreted the stuff and again i got the original the my original uh indoctrination into Taoism through bruce lee and i did not know it was Taoism. i just thought it was him you know he's just fucking cool um <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so, absolutely but, but later then whenever i did read the Tao Te Ching and then poured over it and really like you know sat with it and then not sat with it and tried to really like take the lessons to heart that was when you know i i realized that the, the mastering that I had done, or actually, I hadn't done that much mastering at that point. I'd mainly done mixing and recording and stuff like that. But when I really started to kind of come to that, you know, Taoist moment, I guess saying come to Jesus moment wouldn't really be applicable here, but Jesus would have been a good Taoist, I bet. Uh, anyway, so. Um, um, no, Dick, I understand there's a deep connection there, in fact. There really yeah. is. So, but no, go on, go on. Uh, so you were saying. Yeah, so, so, you know, the idea behind that that I wanted to move up you know kind of level myself up and I'm like well what's the the one thing that like you know what what's the one set of hands that everything passes through and that's the mastering engineer like you know even the artist doesn't get the full on that the mastering engineer does the mastering engineer is the first one that will get to hear this as it will go to the world like literally it's it's such it's it's a poetic honor in a weird you know freaky way, but the other th- oh I get that it really is it really is a poetic honor it's so true and and to to get myself to that place I have to whenever I I approach a song I like I said I purposely don't have like templates that I use to set things up generally I I will sit down with the song I'll you know have the artist tell me you know tell me the background behind it you know anything any information they want to give me. Um, if they provide references, I will probably listen to those. Usually I'll listen to the song first and then listen to the references. But but the next thing that I do, though, is I listen to the song and I don't do anything to it. I literally just listen. Um, now, I, I don't just like let it all wash over me. I mean, I'm trying to do that as well. But I'm writing down quick little like first lines too, because that first listen is so critical. You will never have that first listen more than once. That's the, the only time you're going to get it. But you know so much at that point, and our ears adapt so 
fast that literally by the time that you hear something twice, you are paying either less or more attention to it based on where the, it falls within your spectrum of uh, perception and or desire. Because so much about what we actually hear and, and pick up on in music is about our desire. So again, in the mastering side of things, the only desire I have is to to please the client and make this sound as good as I possibly can based on their, you know, the criteria that they may have laid out. Uh, and, if, and if they are like just mastered as good as you can, that's exactly what I do. I use my own taste and I say, this is where I think this should be. And for the most part, my job, like I said, is to maybe do a little bit of polish or fine tuning, but really the mix should be great. It should be on point. But I will then yes. take it to that extra little place where it's ready to go out into whatever commercial format you want. Like, you know, the, if you're going to go to streaming, I will make sure that it's ready for that format. If it's going to go on to a CD, it's going on to vinyl, whatever. I mean, um, I don't do really different masters particularly. Um, actually, I don't do different masters for, for the different formats. Uh, I, I know a lot of people do. I just, I kind of feel like that, that, for me, the idea here is that I do the best sounding thing I can I can possibly make, and then I make the you know, format adjustments for wherever it's going to go. Because at the end of the day, I know a lot of people are like, well, yeah, but it's you know the loudness things on different uh, platforms and stuff. You know, they 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 just crush it, and it's like. I, I listen to your, your, your big releases, um, that are out in the world. None of them are backing off. Um, and the thing is we've actually gotten really good with this loudness thing now and things are every bit as loud as they always were. Um, there are, there's definitely a little bit more easing on things, but the thing is there are genres now that absolutely like, you know, you don't mess with the dynamics and, and that's actually been true all along. For instance, jazz and classical, you just don't, you know, part of what you're, uh, what the recordings are about is the dynamics that exist between, you know, the different instruments and the musicians right. and stuff. You can't take that exactly. away. You yeah. go, you go limiting the shit out of it to make it really loud and you, all the dynamics are gone. Now, there's people that will argue, well, yeah, but with places like YouTube where minus 14 LUFS is the thing. Well, I don't give a fuck about LUFSs or, or audio units <laughs> or any of that shit because, I mean, within reason, don't get me wrong. I always check my numbers. I really do. And I, I check, you know, my graphical displays and stuff like that. But it, what I'm after is getting this to sound good and as loud as it should and or could be um, to get out into the world. That's my job in, in, in that respect. Um, and so being able to just sit with the song, not judge it. And this is especially true maybe of, of music that I might not be that familiar with or that I, you know, maybe I have a predisposition that I don't care for or something like that. I've been fooled so many times, happy to say. Um, but keeping oneself open and especially that, that being still and doing active listening, so to speak, um, having that where your mind is almost turned off and you're, you're, listening from a different place that's the the the, the connection with Taoism that i think is, has brought um that that was connected in my mind early on that got me into the idea of, of being a mastering engineer in, in the first place and certainly it's the philosophy behind which i operate from every single time i mean it's every song is different and every song deserves to have me pay that first attention to it and and to you know make good solid decisions based on that so um Again, at the end of the day, my, my, my purpose with this is to help people realize their art in the best light that it possibly can be realized. And, um, you know, that, that's both a, that's both my job. It's my sacred journey. It's my purpose. It's my one thing. Um, you know, <laughs> these are 
all wrapped up into this. And, and again, it resonates through what, what would be, I, I, I'm hesitant to say I have spirituality, but I certainly have philosophy. And I also am smart enough to know that we're talking semantics in most of these cases. We all feel that's the truth. You can name it whatever you want. Yes. You can call it a soul. You can call it your heart. You can call it your brain chemistry, your goop. I don't care. <laughs> we all do it. <laughs> yeah. So absolutely. At the, at the end of the I've, day, then, uh, you know, I think that, that the important thing there is that we, we use that thing, whatever that, you know, again, whether it's the goop or <laughs> whatever. So. And I was vibing on the way you were describing your listening. Mm. And one of the things that I, I have to do when I'm working with people, of course, I'm a, a voice teacher. And so what I'm developing when people come to me, what we're working on together is their vocal technique and their musicianship. And as you know, a huge part of musicianship is one's ability to listen. Mm, absolutely. And of course, what gets in the way of people being able to listen is whatever they're already running that is in their own heads or simply their own unconsciousness, which means they are not used to having their attention go certain places or open in certain ways. And so things can go by that they, that are not there for them. They might as well have been a blind man looking right, at the sunset. Right because they just they're not having their ears open in a certain way and i have to find ways to get my students to open more and one of the things that i found is a hugely important resource for myself reminded me of the way you were describing listening for a mastering engineer is what i might call a transparent listening mm. or or a listening from a listening from nothing a listening from stillness a listening from and now I'll sort of invoke Glenn Gould's. I love his quote. Let me see if I can get it right. So he said something like the ratio between audience and artist should be a ratio of one to zero. So, so his aspiration was that basically the artist would vanish and there would be only art and, and a listener. Mm -hmm. And that vanishing place, if I can, as a teacher, sort of disappear, and I'm not really there in any other way than just a pure listening, then out of that pure listening, I can make different musical moves, I can change what exercise I want the student to do, or I can invite the student to hear more than he or she would have been able to. But the the sort of master resource, if you will, no pun intended, <laughs> for me is this like zero level listening or an, a total openness where I'm not even there. There's just listening. Yeah, yeah. That's and and I think that that's that's something that that as a musician, I think that 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 that's an incredibly. If you can develop that, and, and anyone can get better at that skill. That's the thing is everybody can get better at that skill. Um, and as a musician, that ability to both know, you know, like the, the, you, you can always tell professional musicians and amateur musicians when they're in a group because the amateur musicians are the ones you hear playing all the time. And the professional musicians are the <laughs> ones sitting there looking at them like, what are you doing? <laughs> Not that they're, you know, it's, yes. I encourage people and like, if you're moved to play, play, absolutely have fun with it. But 
the thing about interacting with people is listening for the silence. A good friend of mine, Matthew Florians, he does ambient music. He actually uh, is a sound designer for um, a games company over in the UK. Um, but he described um, his music as the being the kind of contrast to the one thing that he cannot make, and that is silence. And so his music, yeah, he does these beautiful ambient soundscapes. Um, and the stuff that, that he creates has this sense of if silence would, could have sound, that that's what he's getting at. You can really hear the silence too. And, and, um, he, yeah. and he's an incredibly patient Beautiful. musician and stuff. But, but again, it's just an illustration of like, you know, the, the way that, that you can take something. And again, silence is something none of us can create. That's the one thing musicians cannot create. Yes. Um, yes. But it's the thing that we play around in the same way that a visual artist, if once a visual artist learns to look at their negative space, they have just upped their game like tenfold right there and that's yeah, the same yeah. thing with this kind of listening and patience of waiting and and really being present to the moment that, that you're in with with another musician or even your own music like when does the next note come you know in in and what timbre will that note take and why because you know just like a great filmmaker if you stop in uh, uh, any film this is the you know the beautiful thing about like modern technology you can stop a film at any point in really great films every single frame is a piece of art you look at it and you're just like stunned so and that's the same thing so that we as musical artists and the great ones do this every note has a reason to be there if you can't tell me yes. why that note is there then it doesn't need to be there and 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 i'm completely fine with i really felt it needed to be there that's fine that qualifies <laughs> but but at the same yes. time i need to have that or i need to know that like okay this note is a setup for that over here because we're going to give a contrast to this or i'm going to pull them down or raise them up or whatever it may be and that's you know that that, that may sound like mechanics that, that you're trying to do a paint by numbers but it's anything but because having all those skills and the, the higher the degree that you have those skills the more that when you put them together you create brand new things you innovate you know we will probably not make brand new sounds but we can innovate with the sounds that we have so oh yeah and Riffing on what you were saying there about silence is something that has been deeply impactful for me. And my favorite composer from the, the classical domain is Johann Sebastian Bach. And what I've noticed about Bach that he seems to be uniquely capable of, and this is something that I cannot get away from the more and more and more I listen in life, I cannot get away from that Bach seems uniquely able to create the quality of silence which comes after his music is finished. Oh, right. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. Said, oh, my goodness. He, he's, it's like he's able to carve out silence inside of me. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's And that's... There's a, an interesting the real game. There's an interesting technique that that he uses mod, modal. I think it's the the, the, the right term is mod, modally. Um, but in any case, the the closest reference I could give to it that, that's easy to understand is 
Um, I'm sure you've heard this in, in like some modern recordings or maybe sometimes in films where they're really trying to make a mark thing where you've got this sound that's really swelling up big and then it breaks over. And instead of going into a big reverse space, you hear it close off all except for the very highest part and everything just gets really close. But then this real distant little thing, that's the same yes. kind of thing that Bach was doing with the way that he was using interplays between the instruments and stuff. And again, whether he, I, I doubt that he was actually <laughs> thinking through it in that fashion, he was just writing beautiful music, but that's what happened with it because that's how we react to that kind of uh, sound setup and stuff. And so, same with you know the psycho thing causes us to be unnerved not just because it's in psycho it's it's really grating and and like it causes our centers of like oh shitness to go like oh shit (laughs) Mm, mm. yeah i was as you were talking about beautiful beautiful films like really great films where every frame is like literally a work of art i was thinking of you know speaking of psycho Thinking of of Hitchcock. Oh yeah, yeah. Films. I just and I just it, went up to Bodega Bay, like literally, like a week ago. We had to get out of the house. We just oh, drove up there. So. <laughs> wow, his ability to just see those California landscapes—that that it really is like every frame is a painting. Absolutely, almost. Yeah, he he made it look Hitchcock. like some like like Greek or Roman or, or sorry Greek or Italian sort of like you know countryside up here. You know, it's it's been yes. crazy cool how he did that. Yeah, the man was what an eye and what if and I think that like you were saying his sense of negative space and openness mm-hmm. and what's there and what isn't there and the isn't there in between the what is there well, it's, it's just a tremendously important part of art. Right. Great example is like in the birds, you know, pay attention to how little music he's using. But when he does, it's like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. And it, and it really like it, it enhances scenes in just the right amount. And, and you're dying for it when it happens because he's so stark at leaving you kind of there with just the, the, you know, you know, the Foley sounds and, uh, and the actors' voices and stuff. Um, but yeah, brilliantly done and such like brilliantly like ahead of its time in trying like, you know, interesting film techniques and stuff like that. I mean, sure, it does not hold up against modern CGI, but it's not that kind of movie, man. It's, you know, it's and not to sound like I'm nostalgic, but I, you know, this is one place where um, it, it, Hitchcock is hard to, to top. He really is. He knew his craft really yes, well. Um, I would throw he people did. like Ridley Scott up there with him, you know, in, in some ways. Um, I think Ridley yeah, Scott. Brilliant filmmaker. Definitely. Yeah, his, his ability to interpret, especially like fantasy settings and stuff. Um, same thing with, with uh, Peter Jackson, you know, down with the widow with the whole Lord of the Rings. Sure. I mean, my in God. Absolutely. Right. Whole worlds. Yeah. yeah. Whole worlds. And then, you know, you, you have um, such a uh you know again there's there's a the, like werner herzog he you know he's a crazy you know awesome filmmaker all at the same time and so not to take anything away from the, them in, in any way eye. but yeah the 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 way yeah it's the it's rare to see something the way that he did that you know so it really is yeah he had a way of seeing all his own and a way of pacing and a way of inviting his audience in mm. and that's that stillness, like that negative place, that nothing place to listen from, 
it seems to be he invites the the viewer to view from that place of stillness almost, which is a that's like a that's a real masterstroke of artistry. It's like a Bachian sort of masterstroke. Yeah, if you can get your audience to actually become a part of the art, which is really like you know, I mean that is that is the ultimate hope. And I, I think that I think that live yes. performers probably have this happen more than than anyone. But I think that that almost everyone has. Uh, the potential for it to happen, you know, in, in different ways. And that's when the audience receives from you the, you know, the, whatever it is you're putting out, the art that you're, you're creating there in real time or whatever, and they're feeding back to you. And that's amping you up to a point to where you lose yourself in it. Like you're, you know, like I, I've, I've had this experience myself and I've talked to dozens of artists who, who also have shared these kind of experiences where you, you feel like it's just flowing through you. You're no longer creating anything. It's just happening and you happen to be the conduit for it. And when yes. that feeds out to a crowd that's then feeding it back to you, it starts to create this feedback loop. that's like a Mobius strip. It just, it time and everything twists and stops and distorts. And, and we really, I, I think in some ways, if we, if, if transcendence exists for real, it's in those kind of moments. Oh man. Yeah. You're, you're so right about that. So you've been very generous with your time, Gene. Thank you for an amazing conversation. Thank you, Nathaniel. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and it's been fun, fun, fun to talk with you. Now, before we, before we finish, is there anything that you would like to promote or anything you would like people to know about you or how they can find you or what you're up to right now? I would be happy to, to I mean, again, you know, if people want to contact me in, in particular for mastering, um, I don't have, you know, there's, there's no one style or styles that I don't do or anything like that. I have definitely done a lot of hip hop, a lot of, uh, uh, EDM, uh, dance music, um, a lot of blues, uh, a lot of, uh, let's see, ambient stuff. Um, so, you know, the, I'm in particularly well suited to those styles, not necessarily because I'm any better at them than anything else, but I have familiarity that I can, you know, speak the same language to some degree that the artists do in, in those areas. But I'm also just, I love music. I love the, the arts in general. I love, you know, movies. I've scored movies for people. I enjoy being mm. challenged by, you know, different things. And I really love to create with people. I, that's the big thing about this COVID-19 that, that has been something of a hamper because while the online thing has, has really exploded and been awesome. Um, I miss that yeah. being in the room with somebody, you know, like the, there's, there's a literal yes. chemistry that happens in the air, um, that I, that I really miss and I can't wait to get back to. And so I really look forward to, reaching out and, and Hey, you know, if, if you're, if you do hip hop, uh, I um, am happy to listen to your beats, you know, critique them. I do beats as well. I, you know, I, I, we, we, we've got a couple of collectives uh, where, you know, I'd be happy to turn people onto those collectives where, you know, artists, producers, um, beat makers, everything, they kind of come together, they share their skills. Oh, they, that's cool. Yeah. Man. They get feedback. We do this on Slack channels and stuff. So by all means, you know, you know, jump on my website, uh, hit, hit my contact form. Um, and I will be happy to get back to you. Um, and you know, I really, again, I, I love music of all kinds, sound of all kinds. I love, you know, crazy field recording people and everything. Um, but yeah, reach out 
And by all means, you know, uh, if you have a mastering job that you would like to get my ear on, um, I do do free mix consultations. Um, that's whether you master with me or not. So like if you have a mix and you're wanting to find out if it's ready to go to mastering, by all means, I, you know, send it to me. I will be happy to provide you with a, a free round of feedback on that to, you know, to make sure that like, yep, it's ready to go or, oh, you need to fix this or this, or did you really mean for that to be such a shrill sound at the end of that, you know, that, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> but uh, well, that's very generous of you, man, to provide a free listing like that. So once again, I'm going to give out your website. It's mindspawn.com, M-I-N-D-S-P-A-W-N.com. Thank you. Absolutely. Gene, it was a real pleasure. And so anyone who's interested in your work, they can go to mindspawn.com and contact you. Gene's obviously very generous with his listening ears. So I would hope anybody who who would like a, a really good listening and who needs mastering engineering would be happy to go to your website. And you sound like a super fun person to work with as well. Thank you. And that goes both ways. And matter of fact, because I happen to know somebody really well who has worked with you, you are absolutely a blast to work with. And I hear you a lot because she still <laughs> plays your tapes so all the time. So, <laughs> Oh, that's that's great, man. I feel I feel blessed to be there in this faith with y'all. That's, that's Absolutely, amazing. sir. Okay, my friend. Take care now. All right. Be well, sir. You too. Bye-bye.